Welcome to a special episode of Tall Poppy. This is episode 25, where I revisit a relationship that inspired my own leadership back in my late 20s as I was becoming a sustainability professional. If you listened to my backstory in episode 8, you would have heard me talk about the best boss I ever had. Well, today I spoke with Catherine Malloy for the first time in years. We talked about the first conference we worked on together, the reference she gave to my next employer, what came out of the 360 feedback we did with the Malloy Group, and her approach to asking political and business leaders to take action. The influence of her approach has led to things like bringing all the major environmental groups in BC together to become a unified force for positive change, getting Olympic sponsors to go the extra mile in offsetting their emissions and getting all their people to and from the event, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars not budgeted for. We discuss her approach to fundraising and money, to creating management teams, using HR advisors for a different perspective, and her advice for leaders hearing pitches from young people and having a business coach as a leader in the NGO space. All of this is stuff you won't want to miss. I'd like to welcome Catherine Malloy to Tall Poppy. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Tatra. It's so great to hear your voice after so many years, and it's... um, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that we have this opportunity to, to have a chat and for our listeners to benefit from that as well. But let's start with where in the world are you and what's going on around you? What can you see? Well, I am on Gabriola Island in British Columbia, Canada, and I'm looking out the window and we're just, we have spring just arriving and it's been a long winter. We've had uh, more snow than normal on the west coast of Canada and so we've been all a little bit sad about the slowness of the arrival of spring, but it seems to be here now. And um, I've got, you know, 56 mini muffins on my counter because I'm going to be <laughs> visiting my six grandchildren tomorrow. So uh, I thought I'd come, you know, with chocolate chip banana muffins in hand. It always makes Ooh, me more popular. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need the muffins to be popular. <laughs> So let's, um, let's get into a little bit of um, our history. So um, I worked for you, man, I'm trying to think of what year it was. Was it like, it was the late 90s, wasn't it? I, if we started with the International Children's Conference on the Environment, or did we start with another yeah. conference before no, that? it was that one. It was, yeah. That was the first one, and then we went on to the, the other one after that. Right. So that conference, I think that we really pulled our team together in 2001. No, 2000. Oh, okay. It might have been around. Oh, okay. Yeah, late 2000 is when we pulled the team oh, okay. together. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I just want to say uh, just right away, um, you said when you worked for me, and I prefer the terminology worked with me, because that's what we did. We were an amazing team of people that worked together, and each of us held our own responsibilities, and nobody worked for anybody. We all worked with each other, and that's why we were so successful, in my view. Well, and that's... A beautiful illustration of why I refer to you from episode eight as the person that I enjoyed, well, I'll say working with the most. Um, so <laughs> technically you, I mean, you hired me, you put you, I was one of your people that you put together to, in this team to put on this huge event, mm-hmm. which was an amazing experience for me. I remember distinctly having come from being quite burnt out, um, having been, you know, not just uh, an activist in my 
own time, but I felt like I was a bit of a, a career activist and I was really blessed to have the opportunity to work in the environmental realm as well as, um, you know, have it be, you know, part of my, my ethos. But yeah, I, I had gotten to a point where I was pretty, feeling pretty bleak. And then doing this conference, and I remember seeing those kids on stage and, you know, they all had their own projects from all, you know, literally every corner of the globe, you know, Australia, Haiti, you know, just everywhere. And, and seeing what they were doing, I remember, I think it was, was it Spain or Portugal, there were um, a group of kids who were saving an endangered species of chicken. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. (laughs) And, you know, all of that, that experience of seeing all these kids with all these projects literally all around the world, it just had me go, there's hope. Well, kids are doing this stuff, then there's hope for the world. No kidding. I mean, there were 60 uh, countries represented and 500 children between the ages of uh, 10 and 12. And, you know, those kids were wildly inspirational. And it was a good thing because we worked such long hours. And by the the time the kids arrived, you know, we really then had to pour it on. And I I remember thinking to myself, wow, we're working 20-hour days right now as the kids are here. And um, food is a very important thing at at that time because (laughs) you need anything to give you energy. But the kids themselves did give a tremendous amount of energy, oh, more so absolutely. than any of the other adults that came. And I don't know mm. if you remember, but we had a we had a youth board as well as an adult board of yes. directors. Yep. And it was wonderful, you know, for me being in the leadership position to be able to say often to the uh, adult board members, well, actually, you know, that's not what the kids want. So no, we're not doing that. Mm, yeah, and, I love it. <laughs> and it was... Um, inspirational and some of those those kids are well you know it's it's 17 years later so many of them are adults and some of them are working in the in the environmental uh, field so it's it's Mm. it's inspirational for certain Mm, absolutely so can you tell me a little bit about what's happened for you since then and you know moving on from from that, I mean, you had the Malloy group, and then I think, from what I recall, the CR Club kind of came and headhunted you. And for me, it was like it felt a bit premature. I did, I wasn't ready to lose you just yet. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, can you say a little bit about um, what the experience of the Malloy group was like, and then um, you know, moving on from there? The Malloy group has existed on and off really for uh, well over twenty years now. And it's morphed and changed and, you know, had different priorities. But for me, it was always about pulling together a team again of people that mostly that I liked being around, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that inspired me, and that, uh, you know, we could jam up ideas and we could... um, I don't know if you participated that one time when we did a retreat. I think you were there, and Nathan Cullen facilitated our retreat. Oh, yeah, and we did it um, up on, was it near Rockland? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had this. I can't so, I remember that. So it, what was. You know what, I, you know what I do remember? I remember being shocked that I wasn't as, uh, an out of the bo- as much of an out-of-the-box thinker as I thought I was. I could not, like, he, he had us do one of those activities that you, you have a particular objective, you work in a, in a group, and you have to, I, I can't remember if it was, like, have the, the ball roll along the string and not touch something or other, and, and <laughs> I, 
I left that going, wow, I am far more constrained in my thinking than I expected. Well, he opened a lot of windows and doors in my thinking as well. And mm. what I'd love to say about that right now is, is Nathan Cullen is one of the leading federal politicians in Canada. Oh, wow. Okay. And he's, uh, he's I think he's on his third, maybe his third term as an NDP representative for the Skeena North. And, oh. and, and I'm super proud that uh, he's a friend and that uh, he had an influence on my thinking. And I think we had an influence on his thinking as well. Mm-hmm. So that is, so the Malloy group, part of what that was, I think was an opportunity for us all to, uh, you know, have our own dreams, set our own desires. We worked a lot together, I think dream setting. Mm-hmm. And it's part of what I've, uh, I've loved to uh, do is sort of set my intention. And I think we did that a lot at the Malloy group as we set our intentions. And yes, I did get headhunted by the Sierra club and I uh, wasn't sure why they wanted me. And I wasn't sure that I wanted them. And <laughs> it was an interesting marriage. <laughs> and how long and, were you, how long were you there? I was at the Sierra club as their uh, executive director in British Columbia for six years. And I think that's uh, where I really, you know, in reflecting back now, it's where I really learned a lot about leadership. There's a tremendous group of people there. You know, it's a fairly big team, 27 people uh, of staff. And there were three boards of directors. So there was the, Charitable Board of Directors, the Nonprofit Board of Directors, and the National Board of Directors. So, Oh, my God, that's a I know. lot. It was a very <laughs> cumbersome uh, governance structure. Mm. And it required, from my perspective... That sounds like a full-time job in and of its own. It was. It, and <laughs> I really had to learn to listen. And everything was so fast-paced that it was really difficult. So that was the challenge of being a good leader at... Sierra Club was how to hear what people's concerns were because they were so varied. You know, if you're talking Mm. 40 different board members and 30 or 27 staff, it's a lot of opinions and and, and it's a lot of ideas. And how do you synthesize those to be the most strategic and the most effective in the work that you're doing? Mm. It was really difficult. And in the end, I, uh, what I did was formed a, a management team. Mm-hmm. because I didn't feel that I could do it all. It mm. was it was too much. And so in each team had uh, different people that they worked with. So we, uh, we were being fed information constantly by the other staff and by volunteers and various board members could drop in on different teams and feed that information up so that we could get together once a week and sort of set our priorities and say, well, this is what we needed to do. And some of the most beautiful work that we did at the Sierra Club was, in fact, getting all the other big environmental groups into the rooms and uh, sort of two or three times a year and say, with Dogwood Initiative and Suzuki Mm -hmm. Foundation and... um, what was then Sierra Legal Defense and a bunch of the other big provincial groups and just say, what are our priorities and how do we work together? So we would set three priorities a year as groups. We did this for a number of years and then we'd identify each role. So it would be Sierra Club's role maybe to do the communication and be out there um, sort of gathering the troops at the ground level of the activists. And it might have been Suzuki's Foundation's um, 
role to do the science and yeah. then, you know, eco-justice would do the law and mm. Dogwood, their function was also very good at working with the First Nations groups and bringing in um, a lot of ground support from the community level too. So, and then we could take that information and we'd write grant proposals like to some of those big funders and it would be the same proposal, but saying, well, this is what we're doing and this is why we need the money. Yeah, nice. And so it wasn't competitive, and that's where so I coordinated approach. And that it doesn't surprise me in the least that that was how you brought yourself to it. And and the I can imagine the impact that it had on on the movement itself in terms of being able to play to everyone's strengths. Well, and everybody everybody was very open to the idea. And I, in fact, felt like I came when I first came to my very first meeting of all of the other groups one of the things I noticed right away was that that NGO sector was not was very um secretive about what they were doing they didn't want to share they were keeping their ideas to themselves and coming from the business sector that surprised me because even though businesses are constantly competing they in fact the businesses I was working with anyway we were more likely to share information and to coordinate together and uh, not compete in that same way. So, well, these are your strengths and these are my strengths, so let's get together and make it happen, particularly in sort of socially-minded entrepreneurial ventures that I was involved Mm -hmm. in. So I was very surprised when the big NGO sector, ENGO sector in Canada, in British Columbia, wasn't doing that. So it was nice to make that shift. And, and with that, one of the things that came out were none of the groups at that time in 2003 were doing anything about climate change. Suzuki mm-hmm. Foundation a little bit, but really, it, like, climate change was not on the agenda. And it had been on my agenda seriously since 1994. So yeah, I was a bit yeah. surprised that it wasn't on the agenda of... British Columbia environmental groups. So um, it was a it was really good to coordinate on climate change because um, we were all doing that work anyway uh, in terms of you know sequestering CO two emissions in forests. We just now we just had another argument of why it was a good idea not to rape and pillage our forests. <laughs> so <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the like I'm I'm hearing you talk about the the sort of the collaborative approach and bringing people together and playing to their strengths on a very high level f- with organizations and I'm wondering if if you can compare that to working with individual teams or working with a single organization like what do, what do you see are some of the the distinctions and the similarities between high level coordination of organizations and working within a single organization working within a single organization it's the same thing, really. I mean, we're just talking about people. Mm. And people, we all want to be heard. We all want to speak our truth as best we can, and we all want to be heard. And if in a leadership role, you know, if we can, if we can really just pull out people's strengths on what makes them a good leader, on what makes their ideas work and and if we can have other people feel that the safety in doing that then we're going to have success and the other thing to remember is failure isn't a terrible thing mm. uh, failure just is an opportunity for learning 
So, and what is failure, really? Uh, I mean, we all um, we all have these visions of what we think failure might be, but failure really is just about an opportunity for us to ha- learn how to do things better. And, um, you know, so I think as an example of a leader that, you know, we, we don't want to lecture people. This is what you got to do and there's your list and get to it and, you know, report back to me and let's see how you've made all those measurables and blah, blah, blah. But really it's about being the person who does uh, leads by example is what it is rather than lecturing it and, and not to block a lot of group process. Mm. Don't always have all these interventions and, um, I mean, I think if the rituals can be more about uh, seeking wisdom from your team rather than imparting wisdom onto your team, then you're just going to have a stronger team. You're going to have more independent team and you're going to have people that feel inspired and creative and they're, they'll think more laterally. And that's what's so important. Problem solving in our world right now we have to create more problem solvers and there's enough problem makers out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the distinction you make around what I think of as generating collective wisdom rather than imparting wisdom on your team. And when you talk about process, can you say a little bit more about what that means to you? I've sure learned a lot over the years. I think back, you know, when I listened to the podcast, when you said that I was one of your favorite bosses, I thought, oh my goodness, those are I mean, I just think so many of mistakes that I made in those years as a leader. And uh, and I've actually been really adverse to the term boss. But I, I just think Most that in, <laughs> in terms of process, I, I mean, I think that's pretty individual. And sometimes I think that, you know, we can all become processed cheese if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. And so my way of processing, I process very quickly. I, I know that. So I have to be careful. And often um, in, leaders, in leadership roles, a leader, it, it, if you're an executive director of a large group, you can off, it's called the marathon effect. And you can often be way ahead in your thinking and forget to look back and forget to see what ground you've covered if everybody has caught up in that fashion. So it's about really learning other people's abilities to process. I'm sure you remember Mickey Sterling. Yes. And Mickey was probably one of my greatest teachers. So she was the HR manager for the International Children's Conference on the Environment. She was and the glue. That she was, that yes, she was the team leader of all of the staff, really. And Mickey came on to Sierra Club and worked with me for many years. And in fact, I've continued to hire Mickey on HR uh, management um, projects over the years right until last year thing that came out of um i'm just i'm just remembering the the 360 feedback process that we did after Mm -hmm. the children's conference and i had never experienced that before and the thing that really stood out for me was learning something that i could not see which was that i don't ask for help enough Uh and and the impact that that was having on other people and that was life-changing for me to learn that it was just phenomenal yeah and Mickey was wonderful about uh, about ensuring that process happened and she Mm -hmm. 
she's also very skilled at identifying the different ways that people process information. And oftentimes I could say a sentence to her and say, this is my interpretation of blah, blah, blah. And she would use those same words, exact same words and say, oh, well, this is my interpretation of that. And they would be completely different. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting also because I I think very quickly and I move very quickly in my thought process. Mickey is more thoughtful and um, chooses her words very carefully and uh, thinks through things, I would think, in in more detail than I do. And, um, And that process allowed me to learn in the gentlest, beautiful, most beautiful way about about how important other people's um, thoughts are, other people's ideas and their ability to contribute. And you're right, like the 360 process, if we can be given that information in a way that is healthy and strong and we feel like, um, you know, we're appreciated for the good things. We're given the, and it's information, not definition on the things maybe we have to work on. doesn't define mm-hmm. how, who we are, but it, it maybe tells us how we can uh, be more successful. Looking back at that, I feel really lucky that I had the opportunity to do that process in that space because it was gentle and compassionate and loving and and wise you know it was and I can imagine in in many situations when it in when it's delivered it might not have those elements and and so yeah I just I feel quite blessed me too and I continued to have Mickey do that for me personally until my last year of working last year she Mm -hmm. facilitated my 360 process and I brought 360 to every organization that I've worked with because I felt it was very important for us all to be able to give each other feedback in authentic safe and genuine ways Absolutely. So I'm gonna, I want to go down the leadership track a little bit more in a moment, but I also, um, before that, want to take a, a little trip back in time. After I was working for AIDS Vancouver Island, I applied for a job at City Green, where you used to, um, well, you used to lead that organization. And at the time, Corey Waters was leading the organization, and he asked you about hiring me. Do you mm-hmm. remember? Oh, maybe. <laughs> so I, I have a real distinct memory of this, partly because I feel like um, this is, again, another example of, of one of the reasons I admire you so much. So um, at the time, I was, uh, I don't know what the, the word, experimenting comes to mind, but it's perhaps more about expression. I had colored hair. And, um, and Corey asked you, you know, what about the colored hair? <laughs> Do you remember no, I don't. Okay, so uh, from from what I understand, because we we talked about it um, afterwards, you said to him, "If the colored hair is the concern for you, then you've got bigger problems." <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, good. I'm glad I said that because I would, I, you know. Who cares what color your hair is? In fact, I was always envious of your coloring of your hair. (laughs) (laughs) Once I turned 40, I was like, oh, I should stop doing this and do the adult thing. And then people are like, what, what's, what are you doing? Like, what is this about? And I'm like, oh, I guess it's about my sort of preconceived notions of what aging looks like and how to be an adult. And, um, and so, you know, since then I've, I've, uh, sort of ebbed and flowed with the various colors of my hair and, 
Um, at the moment it's blonde, but I'm, I'm thinking about putting a purple streak and a, perhaps a teal streak in there. And yeah, I might do the same. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> Excellent. So let's get back to your experience. So from, from the Sierra Club, mm-hmm. tell, me, tell me about what, what happened after that. Well, I left the Sierra Club in uh, 2009 and um, in January 2009, and I sat on my couch on Gabriela Island and stared out at the forest for a full four months, just recovering from... (laughs) It was really difficult work, I I realized, after I'd left. And I knew that I wanted to leave because there were other people that needed to move into the leadership role. Mm. And um, Can you say more about that? Well, you know, when you work in in an NGO, um, you know, people can get locked into their positions. And some people want to move uh, in those positions. They want to have an opportunity to um, move up. And I knew that I was taking a space. I also knew I was tired and and I wasn't being my best leader. And it was time for me to move on because I was becoming cynical and... um, not a very good listener, I would say, and feeling more agitated with people than I wanted to be. I wasn't as open to people's ideas, and so I knew it was time to move on. And and it was really the right choice because I realized how exhausted I was. I had had this amazing opportunity through this group called TREK, Training Resources for Environmental Communities, uh, funded by the Wilberforce Foundation. Oh, yeah that put me through this incredible nine-month leadership training program. It was I, I, nothing like it had ever um, existed for me, and I refer to it still all of the time and would actually love to be able to develop something like that for the rest of the NGO world. This was specifically for large uh, environmental nonprofits in um, North America, so Canada and the U.S., and mm-hmm. 20 people are chosen a year to go through that program, and it's, I couldn't say enough good things about it, um, but I think also what that did is it, it, it taught me and it taught us how to reflect on our own leadership, and I realized that I was tired and I needed a break, so I took that break, and I didn't realize that not only was I resting to recover from my job, but I was resting, um, you know, to prepare for my husband, uh, who later that spring was diagnosed with this deadly cancer. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, almost eight years ago. And he, you know, it was life changing and I needed to be there and rested in order to keep him alive essentially mm-hmm. and, uh, help make the miracles happen, which we did. Uh, I mean, we had wonderful miracles that happened around him living because they gave him three months. And, um, in fact, he lived seven years over seven years after that. So, wow. yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, so then I was on Island here on Gabriola Island and, not wanting to leave, not wanting to be far from him. Um, And an opportunity came up on the island to be the executive director of the only nonprofit social service agency on um, Gabriola Island. So I accepted that job and I learned to redefine productivity in a whole new way. (laughs) 
Well, well, you know, at Sierra Club, you know, I define productivity on, um, you know, basically the number of forests that we stopped from being uh, torn down or what other environmental issue, whatever mine tailings that didn't go into the pond or, mm-hmm. um, you know, how many funding proposals I got out the door, how many board reports I got written. It was very easy to measure my productivity in a, a pretty succinct way at Sierra Club. But at, mm-hmm. um, at this group on Gabriola Island, uh, it's called People for a Healthy Community. And really, it's uh, even though we're a small island with a population of 4,000, there's about 120 people a week that require uh, food and mm-hmm. uh, mental health support services, so uh, addictions and mental health issues. And I, I, my productivity started to be more about uh, being able to sit in my office and have people come in and and for me just to listen to their story, just to witness mm-hmm. them, just to hear them. And that and that first I had a very hard time because I thought, oh, how what am I going to do with this information? It's overwhelming. But what I realized is that's the information I needed in order to bring the money into the organization to, to help define the programs in, um, you know, to, to expand the staff, to expand the resources. And, uh, and it was a whole lesson for me. It's fascinating to me to hear that because I had a, a stint in the social service or well health realm, um, working for AIDS Vancouver Island. Um, but the rest of my career was primarily around, um, environment work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to hear your, your take on this, on this path as well. And it, it, for me, it's a, it was a very heart opening, um, experience. And I feel like that, you know, the, 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 the engagement of the heart is, is a, a key element of environmental work. But I think when you're working with human stories and human, you know, tragedy and suffering and loss, it, it changes the shape of how we engage, how we be compassionate and how we look at society as a whole. That's how it was for me anyways. What, what was it like for you? Yeah, for me, what I learned was the priority um, and this organization was about serving food <laughs> and yeah. love. We served uh. food and love. We did not serve judgment. And I, you know, at one point I came into the kitchen and I had a few volunteers in there and they were complaining about, you know, these guys out back, they can afford to smoke cigarettes, then they can afford to go buy their own food. And I said, oh, right, wow. right then and there, I said to them, we do not serve judgment here. We serve food and we serve love. If you mm. cannot do that, you need to leave. And three of them wow. left right there. Wow. And I, I realized how important that is. And it doesn't matter what work we do. And I think that that's even more important now that we're coming into a time in our world where we are, I mean, we're, 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 we're seeing more war, we are seeing more environmental crises, climate change is climbing up our back. Um, we are going to have to learn how to cooperate. If, if people can fight over, uh, literally come to fisticuffs in Vancouver over uh, bottles of water when there's a boil water advisory, what's going to happen when there's no water. I distinctly remember learning from you about 
working together. And there was, uh, I'm trying to remember the words that you used, but I, I have a distinct memory of it being about not what we can do as an individual or uh, in a single organization, but the, the impact that working collaboratively has. And, and I think that was around the, the stewardship conference as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think that was one of the things that really instilled in me the importance of collaboration. So I love hearing you talk about that now as well. Yeah, and it doesn't it, it doesn't matter in what walk of life or in what area of leadership or what kind of work or what kind of volunteer job you have, collaborating, listening, sharing, mm. open, being open to hearing other ideas is so important and so valuable and we will be more successful. And I really do believe that this time in our in the world, the way the world is right now, that it's more important than ever that we consider all of those things. Absolutely. I totally am with you. And I'm curious because I had a conversation with another guest recently about what has played out as far as, you know, our collective decision making um, in the U.S. And there's a, a real desire for simple answers to complex questions. And at the same time, there is this real polarization and for me, it's, I, I hear the, a bit of, you know, sort of activist rhetoric going, oh, you know, the, now's the time for us to rise again. And I'm thinking, oh, please don't. Let's not go down the same path. Like For me, there feels like a, a collective opportunity for us to look at how we're doing this and to look at the divisiveness and look at, you know, what's missing and how can we impact that that polarization in a way that that creates a different result. Like I, I just, I, I, you know, you may have remember me talking about this in, in um, the, my backstory in episode eight around that adversarialism. Yeah. You know, the, the us versus them. And, and, and again, this was one of the reasons why I loved working for you was, or working with you <laughs> is because you were all about working together rather than being in opposition. And I found that to be the most successful with politicians. And I remember actually saying one time to Gordon Campbell, in, um, who was the then premier of our province here, in a meeting with him. And, you know, he was very standoffish. And I was with the Sierra Club and what, you know, he had a lot of opinions. And, and, um, and I looked at him and I said, let's just consider this like dating. You know, we just have to get to know each other for a while. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to like each other. And, mm. and wow. you know, and in, and in the end, I think we liked each other. I mean, I didn't agree with everything that he did, but he certainly, you know, he did put in some very um, strong climate change policy, which mm. I felt that, you know, I could have written myself. And I felt one of the collaborative things that we did, and, and what I want to say about change is the importance of working with our politicians. And, and we can be adversarial and against them. And sometimes we need to do that. There's no question. Yeah. But other times we need to really work with them. And I had this amazing board member at Sierra Club who was, you know, I couldn't keep her busy enough. She, she was so, anything she did, it was, she was so wildly prolific and get the job done faster than I could ever imagined. So I just started giving her every book that I thought was important about climate change, had her read the book and then write a book report. And then we sent the book and the book report to Gordon Campbell. Oh, wow. And um, so every week he was getting a new book and a book report. And oh, wow. um, great. What a great strategy. <laughs> and then, you know, and in the end, he, he became a convert on the climate change mm. issue. Wow. And again, maybe not to the degree I wanted, but certainly far further along the continuum than he'd ever been before. And I, 
and I had that um, after I left PHC, the People for a Healthy Community, I, I started working in the heritage uh, sector in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And I had that same kind of relationship, actually a much stronger relationship with the minister in charge of heritage in British Columbia. And and he was so open to hear my ideas and I was so open to his hear his ideas. And we'd meet and it was like we had this genuine affection for each other because, mm. you know, we could um, understand where we were coming from. I could have been adversarial, but I didn't see the value in that. Mm-hmm. Although I do want to say it's important sometimes. If, yeah. if your government is not listening to you, then sometimes you have to, you know, be a bit more aggressive on how you bring it to their attention. Try yeah. all the other ways first, and mm-hmm. then if it doesn't work. <laughs> but also, in terms of collaboration, one of the most important things we can all do, and we can all remember in our own leadership ways, is vote. When you have an opportunity, you want to see change, vote. So in Australia, voting is mandatory, but in, with the tall poppy community, I think it's just about half of, the, of our listeners are Australian, and then there's um, US, Canada, New Zealand, Germany, Japan, Sri Lanka, Philippines. We've got people from all over the world. So yes, it, where, where it's not mandatory, um, and, and look, even when it is, because there's also one of the phenomena in a, a society where voting is mandatory, they, they have a thing called the donkey vote, where people basically destroy their ballots, mm. and they... They, they still are technically, um, you know, doing their, their duty um, and will not be fined, but they um, are declaring a non-confidence vote ultimately. Um, but sadly, it, it uh, doesn't appear to have a huge impact. Right. Well, then if you're not, if you don't feel that you can confidently vote for anybody that's, um, you know, running, then you have to consider running yourself. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> So let me ask you, is that something you're thinking about? Because I remember quite some time ago, there were sort of political leanings that you were heading towards. So where are you at with that now? Well, uh, as you know, Tathra, my beloved husband, Jeff, did die this past August. And I I feel very much retired now. So I don't think that I'm going to get involved politically in anything. I, I was asked again recently, but I, I just don't think I have it in me. Mm. And I and the reason for that is because uh, you know I'm yeah I'm, I'm certainly going to have, to have a whole new self discovery about who is Catherine Malloy as mm. just uh, an individual person not married to you know quintessential Canadian artist Jeff Malloy mm. and. And I have six beautiful grandchildren, and I really have made a, um, a, a career of being an NGO entrepreneur. And so I, I think I just need to enjoy life now. Fair enough. And I'm going to yeah. pick up on that NGO entrepreneur concept. Tell me, mm-hmm. tell me about that. Well, you know, I, I've had businesses and I, ha- and I have a business now, actually. Gallery 401 is uh, the business that will be, it is selling and distributing and Jeff's art. Jeff's art yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's so many similarities between a nonprofit and a business. In fact, both need revenue inflows and both have expenses. And, and as a, in working in the you know, non-government organization or non-profit organizations, you even have to be more entrepreneurial in my view, yeah. because, you know, so many of the funders believe that, well, we'll fund this project and then, 
um, but they only want to fund new projects. Well, you know, all of those uh, funders made their money in their own business, and it wasn't because they created a product or a or a, a service that they did once and then you know, moved on. <laughs> so is it, is it a, a, working in the nonprofit sector? You have to be so entrepreneurial because you have to spin that story now to be a new project when it's really the same project. <laughs> yeah, I remember in the, in the first, probably close to 10 years of my career, I never had a job that lasted longer than a year because they were all one year funded positions. Yeah. Uh, and I think probably if there's anything sort of along the political leanings that I would do, it would be about funder education and tell, and really educating them on how important it is that we, act, we, we don't keep giving up these project ideas. Certainly we need to have evaluative criteria that sometimes it's hard to let go of a project if you've you know, it's your, it's been your baby for 10 years, but really if it's not effective anymore, then probably it's time for a new project, but to come up with new projects all the time, mm. it's really hard. Also, um, in Canada anyway, and possibly in Australia and other parts of the world, we're being encouraged in the nonprofit sector to be, uh, to set up social enterprises, which are, yeah, you that know, was my next question. For yeah. Me. Like yeah, a business I'm seeing more that, of a, I, like and one of the conversations that I had with um, in a in a previous interview with Alicia Darval with regard to the rise of B Corp benefit corporations and businesses that are for purpose is there's kind of this continuum there's social enterprise there's not for profit and um, but then there's for purpose and uh-huh. you can be a um, not like a technically an NGO or a not-for-profit organization, but still be for purpose. But you can also be technically for profit and still be for purpose as well. Yes. So what, what you, and, and I think, honestly, I'm, I'm interested to see where that leaves or, or the direction that takes philanthropy. So, yes, yeah, t- tell me more about what, what you're seeing there. Yeah, and I guess what I would call that, um, well, you could call it a social enterprise uh, to a certain degree um, or there's now there's this interesting thing happening in philanthropy in um, Canada and the US again and it's called social venture capitalism so it's it's about taking capital and money earned from businesses and it reinvesting it back into socially minded businesses and nonprofits and that's why I think it's important for NGO leaders to be entrepreneurs because you need to understand the way a business works in order to um, appreciate you know how their their revenue streams might work and how you could feed into their business uh, success by them um, being philanthropic to you so mm, uh, you know you can't just if you if you're sort of anti-business and anti-corporate, anything well you're you're actually eliminating a huge sector of your own um financial pie in my view and so it's important to understand how that sector works and if you don't are not entrepreneurially minded in that fashion you won't understand business and so for example uh you know at the when we did the conference we had that whole sponsorship guidelines so we said we will take your money but these are the criteria by where we're going to accept your money Mm-hmm. And this is what we will do for you for that money. You give us this much money and we will acknowledge you in these ways. Yeah. And, and they need to be authentic and real and valuable and important. And I remember there was a real 
clear line if you are engaging in any of these activities, whether it be, you know, environmental degradation, gambling, mm-hmm. with alcohol and tobacco. tobacco. Yeah, that's true. And uh, actually, I was I sat on the uh, board advisory uh, committee for the Olympics here in 2010. Oh, yeah. And it was interesting for me because, you know, these were going to be the greenest Olympics and, and they talked a lot about, uh, CO2 offsets, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And at one time I was sitting at the table with the big sponsors, you know, Bell and Rona and all of the big, big sponsors, Ford. And, um, I said to them, I looked at them all and I said, so how are you going to offset your emissions yourselves by coming to these Olympics. Like, what are you doing? Nice. And, and, and their faces dropped and you, and you know, a couple calculators came out and I said, you know, if you're thinking about it, like how many of your staff are you bringing? So people Mm -hmm. like Ford or Bell, they're bringing hundreds of staff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and those are all airplane emissions and they're all looking like, Oh my God, this is. And then I think it was the representative from Bell said, well, that's going to cost us an extra, you know, $300,000. And I said, well, I mean, if you're going to say that this is the greenest Olympics and you're riding on the coattails of that, then go all the way. And they did. They Did absolutely did. And, and, you know, for me, uh, I think that they could stand proud to say that in the end. Mm. And they did stand proud to say that. That's awesome. I I love hearing these stories because it's kind of like, you know, you have the opportunity to have these conversations with people. And because of the approach that you take and the, the sort of, you know, um, whether it's collaborative or com- like camaraderie or listening or getting to know people, they they listen to you and they, they can see, like, I think you have a level of influence that is quite distinct from how people usually think of influence. Well, it's, it's exciting. I think actually, Tatra, one of the things I've learned is that it is our job to ask, and it is the other whoever's you're asking. It's their job to answer, and and I t- I've taken that approach to fundraising. I've taken it to the approach to you know paying your offsets, CO two mm-hmm. offsets, and and just ask the question. And mm-hmm. are you willing to do this? And you may get people stumbling around. My motto is to ask three times. If you get a no the first time, ask it a different way the second time. If you get a no the second time, ask it a different way the third time. And each time with a level of inquiry. And then if you get a no a third time, be okay with it. You know, don't judge it, but be okay with it. And know that you asked. And, And I know that I've done that with fundraising where I've said to my team, uh, all right, let's go out and, you know, we're all in charge of asking some different people for money. And I remember somebody getting the list and saying, oh, oh, that person can't afford to give. And I said to them, how do you know that? I mean, I know some very poor people who are some of our best donors. So it's our job to ask. It's not yeah. our job to just determine what we think is the answer. Along that lines, I was raising funds to uh, go to from Australia to Oregon to be with Joanna Macy on a 30-day intensive mm-hmm. program. And so, you know, raising funds to get there. And I was telling someone about this. And she's, you know, single mom, works part-time, has a chronic illness. And as we, we were walking, um, I was, you know, just telling her the story about what I was doing with the fundraising and stuff. And on the way, she stopped in an ATM and she took some money out and she handed it to me. And I, I was like, 
a little bit confused because I hadn't asked her. Right. And then I realized not asking her was actually insulting. Yes. And assuming that she couldn't afford it was insulting. I, I, it was actually more important for me to ask and to give her the opportunity than for me to make assumptions about what she could afford. And, and I know from looking at the work of Lynn Twist with The Soul of Money, it's, mm. it tends to be people who earn less that are more um, giving and generous. Well, and Lynn Twist taught me some great things. I had got the opportunity to do a five-day workshop with Lynn oh, Twist. Fantastic. The Soul of Money workshop at Hollyhock. And oh, one, of, yeah, one of the things that I learned from her um, and this is my interpretation. I don't think it's her words, but money is really just energy. And if you think about money um, as an as an entrepreneur, as a leader, um, in whatever kind of whether it's a business or a nonprofit, that money is what we use. To, it's one of the tools. It's a tool to move our projects along or move our product out the door or our service out the door, whatever it is. Money is a tool for that. And it's really energy. And if we can think of it a little bit with a little bit cleaner of uh, energy ourselves, then it's going to be more positive for us. I, I know that, you know, uh, money, there's, we've all got heaps of issues around money like you know when you're crawling along the floor as a baby and you pick up money and put it in your mouth your mother screams oh that's dirty take it out of your <laughs> mouth so money's dirty from an early age and if you've got too much of it you're greedy and if you don't have enough you're stupid or lazy yeah. and and all of these you know all of our uh, these emotions that we have around money it, the, it's just heaped with all kinds of um judgment and uh, so let, if we can find ways to let go of that and put this beautiful, loving energy behind money, mm. um, then I think in, as leaders, that uh, that is, if that is one thing we can do as leaders is let go of all of our stuff around money and just let it be yeah. and, and let it flow, have it come in and out. I mean, we have to manage our money. I've told my kids all their life, money is like our personal hygiene. We deal with it daily. Mm. If you don't deal with it daily, you may have some trouble with it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, there's much more I'd love to dive into that, but I'm going to um, move into some of the questions that I ask all my guests. Um, mm -hmm. and I feel like you've probably talked a bit about this, but I'm going to ask anyways and see if there's something different that arises. What does leadership mean to you now that's different than it has been in the past? Hmm. It's a bit quieter for me, I guess, when I think about it. Leadership is more, for me, a lot more about listening and allowing other people's leadership to step forward. It's just more and more, I believe, how important that is. And, it, and we can get wrapped up in our egos around it. It's so easy. It's so easy to get wrapped up in our egos around it. But if we can, you know, if we can have the role where everybody's success is is theirs, if we could always just be, you know, our own success, if we can push it back onto the people that we work with and acknowledge it and understand it and celebrate it, then I think that we're just going to be more successful in, as humans in the world. Mm, absolutely. And in terms of thinking of those who have an idea, a book, a, a project, a business that they want to bring into the world but feel a bit reluctant a bit 
you know, like there's a lot of barriers, it's too hard. What advice would you have for them? Hmm. Well, it is always hard to bring your ideas forward sometimes. And we always, well, not all of us, but I think it's, it's good to be reflecting, but take the risk step out, step out of your comfort zone. I had one time a coach, by the way, I've almost always had a business coach and, okay. um, you may You've not had have a business that. coach while you were doing not-for-profit stuff. And Malloy group always had a business coach. I, I always kept it quite quiet because it was, uh, not that fashionable, <laughs> but I've had a bit business coach for 20 years and, um, it's the same coach or, or is it someone different? I've had three different coaches. Uh, one actually who's been consistently my coach throughout the whole time, but I've had other coaches as well. Um, and when I did the Trek leadership program, they gave me a coach, which was wonderful. But one, one of my coaches asked me one time that said, you know, if you, if you sort of drew a picture of yourself just as a dot in the middle of the page, and then you drew a circle around that and said, that's your comfort zone. Then how do you, how do you reach out of your comfort zone? So for some of us, we expand it slowly. And for people like me, I leap way out. And then I look behind me and go, oh my God, what have I done? And and then I figure it out from there. Um, But no no matter what your process is on how you get out of your comfort zone, do it. Stretch out of your comfort zone. And that's what makes great leaders. That's what makes great entrepreneurs stretch and believe in your idea. And so if that means that you need to get it down to three sentences and you can pitch that idea in three sentences, do it that way. Whatever your story is, maybe you have to write it. Maybe it's um, talking about it. Whatever it is, stretch out of your comfort zone. It'll be worth it every single time. Beautiful. Thank you. So before we finish up, is there anything else that you want to say? Anything else that you want to have our listeners think about or anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, I want to say that, you know, as uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a, in my senior years now. I'm not a senior yet, but, <laughs> you know, I'm in my 50s. And I want to say that oftentimes when we have had a lot of life experience and a lot of work experience, it's easier it's easy for us to, when somebody uh, pitches an idea, a younger person pitches an idea to us, that we can go in our mind, yeah, been there, done that, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just want to express how important it is not to do that for a number of different reasons. One is because it's a different time and that idea might work now. Yeah. And also it's really important, even if it doesn't work, that that's how people learn and that's how they become yeah. better leaders themselves. So I just want to, uh, I guess, encourage all of a, the sort of sage, you know, or more experienced leaders to be open to younger people's ideas because they're better than our ideas. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love it. <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's been really um, a great experience for me to reconnect with you after all these years. And lovely for me, Tatra. I've, I've loved working with you always, and it's a real joy to reconnect with you. And it's great to hear about all of the, the things that you've done and the influence that you've had, the difference that you've made, and, and the approach that is consistent from you know back, back in the day when... You know, I was working with you 17 years ago to, to now. It, it feels like that 
those those really beautiful and effective leadership traits have just blossomed. So it's it's really great to see and great to hear about. Thank you. I have such deep love and respect for Catherine Malloy. It's a real treat for me to see the early influence on who I am today and how we've both grown and developed. It was both a privilege and really hard to witness her husband Jeff's journey with cancer. I remember back in the day, Jeff had the basement of the house with all sorts of fun contraptions and found objects for sculptures. This was before he started painting, I think. The magic of the internet and social media allowed me to witness Jeff's art from a distance. I recommend having a look at the website of his work. I said to Catherine before the interview that I think his work has helped move the Canadian identity from not American, like when I was growing up, to having clear icons. And he shows the simple things and the multiple layers of meaning, like the HBC blankets and hockey jerseys. So amazing that he outlived his prognosis by seven years. It really is a testament to the human spirit. And that's one of the things that anyone who has met Catherine Malloy will be left with. She has such a spark of joy and vitality. And for me as a young activist wanting to become a professional, in the trenches of the front line, protests were pretty angry and witnessing the devastation of the coastal temperate rainforests was heartbreaking. And then there was Catherine, as committed and dedicated to the same things, but with a sprinkle of that laughter, perennial optimism and fierce determination. Working with her was such a breath of fresh air. And to see how far she's come doesn't surprise me at all. I can just imagine her staring down an exec from Ford at the Olympic Greening Committee, having the conversation with them that led to them putting their money where their mouth is to make it the greenest Olympics ever. When I left Canada, it wasn't long after Gordon Campbell had been elected as Premier of BC, and I remember being devastated and concerned about the future of the province. So to hear that Catherine found her way into his heart and helped him make decisions that show he cares about the future and make better decisions about climate policy than he would have if she wasn't there, that's the kind of thing that gives me hope. As much as those kids from around the world at the International Children's Conference on the Environment when she and I first started working together. And yeah, thinking about them being grown up now and the impact they continue to have. So what are you taking to heart from this conversation? Let's start with collaboration. I can still remember that conversation when Catherine was talking about how she felt it was more effective to work with people than against them. That was huge for me back then. Much of my work had been focused on fighting against the powers that be, against the destruction of the environment, against the system and the dominant paradigm. Is there something about how you see the world today that could benefit from working for something instead of against it? Or working with people to make change? Can you imagine collaborating with what you perceive as an adversary? I've learned so much from Catherine, and I'm so grateful for the time that I had with her and for being able to reconnect with her today. Is there someone that you know that's influenced you earlier in your life that you could reach out to? As we bring this to a close, I'm present to how grateful I am for these conversations that I get to have as host of Tall Poppy. And there are some great interviews coming up. Our next episode is an interview with technology innovator Claire Diaz-Ortiz, named one of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company, an early employee at Twitter, where she was hired to lead corporate social innovation. We talk about her new book with Ken Blanchard, One Minute Mentoring, plus the web summit she's organizing, all about mentoring. Thanks for being part of the Tall Poppy community. 
If you found any value in what you've heard, help your fellow listener make an informed choice about listening by leaving a review, just a few words, or sharing this episode via or any other via social media. It all makes a difference for making a change in the leadership paradigm because it's you that challenges the status quo and that looks at leadership differently and the power of our own leadership, regardless of our role at work, in business, and in life. Thanks for listening.